Hey and welcome to Ahead of the Curve. I'm Jonathan Gellner and thank you so much for being here. If you're listening to this episode, my wife Macy and I are in the process of having our first child, a baby boy. In celebration of this, I interviewed my dad, former big leaguer, John Gellner, for this podcast. John came up with the Pirates, so we talked about playing with Roberto Clemente and some of his hitting philosophies. We get into some Willie Stargell, Bill Mazeroski. We talk about getting traded for Lou Pinella and playing for two expansion teams while being featured in Jim Bouton's book, Ball Four, and being included in the move from Seattle to Milwaukee when the Pilots left Seattle after just one year. We also get into what it was like to pitch against Reggie Jackson, the Big Red Machine, and some of the greatest hitters in the 60s and the 70s. But we also discuss how being from Oklahoma helped him develop relationships with Johnny Bench and Mickey Mantle. When I was growing up, I got the pleasure of hearing so many of these clubhouse stories, and he's here to share the ton with you today. So it is my pleasure to introduce not only a former big leaguer, but my dad. Here is John Gellner. John Gellner, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you, son. I really appreciate working with you. <laughs> I love it. So talk to us about, you know, we're, we're going to get into your major league career later, but talk to us about, you know, yourself growing up in the thriving metropolis of Granite, Oklahoma, you know, population currently 2,015 people. And talk about how that shaped you into, you know, becoming a future major leaguer. Well, I grew up on a farm north of Granite. And we we were just a family that was raised on the farm. And how it shaped my major league career, the only thing I have to say is I always was throwing things throughout my life. You know, be it rocks at fence posts or throwing baseballs against the brick wall that we lived in, the house that we lived in against the wall. It was just purely reputatious. And it helps that you had an older brother that I'm sure that you guys played a lot of baseball together. You guys, you know, with five kids growing up all in a house that uh, before the current technology that we've got, is that all you guys did was just play outside? That's purely all we did when we got through with all our chores and work that we had to do at night. We always grabbed the baseball, went outside and threw it, played catch threw at each other as far as he was hitting and I was hitting. We both did that. Then we ran down and chased the only ball we had. Well, this is after you had to wake up in the morning and milk cows, correct? Yes, we woke up every morning, hand-milked cows, fed the chickens, hogs, whatever. (laughs) Oh, yes, we did all that. That's true. That's awesome. (laughs) And so how did you get involved in baseball and, you know, what, what really started that for you? And when was your first really, your first experience with organized baseball? Well, my first experience with organized baseball was through a friend of ours by the name of Laverne Looper. And he was our postman. And he always saw my brother Charles and myself always playing baseball outside. And he went and asked my dad if I would be interested in playing Little League Baseball. At that time, I think I was about seven years old. And my dad reluctantly (laughs) said yes, and that's where I first got my first taste of playing baseball, organized. My first baseball experience was being played on a uh, football gym, uh, pardon me, a football field at uh, 
<laughs> Mangum, Oklahoma, which you uh, later ran a football. Uh, yeah, that definitely did that. But let's stay on the subject of yourself. So, <laughs> so you're growing up, and uh, you, how did you learn how to pitch? Because I, I just imagine myself seeing all of these different guys on TV. You know, how did you learn how to really play the game of baseball? Obviously, I was very fortunate to do the things I did correctly, Jonathan. In my later years, like uh, when I was 14 or 15, I had a uh, I had an uncle by the name of Uncle Chris Cornett who had played some semi-pro baseball, and that is what he told us. And he would come out to our house on Sunday afternoons and eat eat lunch with my family and I. And uh, what happened, he'd get out and start playing baseball with us. And that's when where he showed me the proper grip of the baseball. And I just, really just took it from there that's the only proper training i actually ever had but i don't know if i honestly used his uh, instructions or not to be honest with you i vaguely remember you telling me growing up that you learned how to throw a curveball by reading it in a book is that is that accurate that's true i read i read my brother both my brother and i were both pitchers and uh, we read this article in uh, either a newspaper or a book, and uh, we started out throwing the knuckle curve. You just read an article and you went and tried it out, huh? That's true. That's true. Interesting. So, so you got to, so you went to Granite High School and talk to us about, you know, going from a really, really small school to a slightly larger school at Granite, Oklahoma, and then how did your career take off from there? Well. We we had some really good athletes in Granite, Oklahoma. I mean, you know, we we were all raised on a farm. We worked hard, and uh, we were just athletically inclined for some strange reason. And the team that we the coach put together was uh, was quite a good team. And so, did you guys play uh, summer ball? I mean, how did how did scouts start to notice that you all had right. some talent? How we got started with that is we went. I played high school baseball at Granite, Oklahoma, and then then during the summer I played uh, on American Legion team in Mangum, Oklahoma. At that time, the Legion program in Oklahoma w- was quite good, and we, every team throughout the state of Oklahoma. I mean, every town in the state of Oklahoma, practically had a team. And we played against all different teams like Clinton, Sayre, Altus, throughout southwestern Oklahoma. And there again, the coaches had got to pick a team and put it together, and we were very good. People for teams from Tulsa would come down and play us. Uh, Oklahoma City would play us. And, uh, well, and another thing I think that helped me to some degree, uh, there was a pitcher out in Hollis, Oklahoma, by the name of Lindy McDaniel, who went on to do great things with the Cardinals and the Cubs. And, but uh, he had a brother that played with me by the name of Butch McDaniel. He was left-handed. And Butch signed to play with the Cardinals again, but uh, I don't know how far his career went. And we were, we were quite good. 
And so what was really your first taste of, man, I, I might actually get to go to college or make a career out of baseball? Was it just one day or was it just something that happened over time? Well, honestly, the uh, at that time, I was only 16, 17 years old, son, and uh, pro scouts were talking to me. And I honestly, I did not want to play professional baseball. So they were saying, we'd like for you to go to Arizona State or OU or places of that nature. And coming right off the farm or still being on the farm, I had really no idea they had that kind of that kind of input with universities. And to this day right now, I don't know if they still have that or not. Well, let's talk about the end of your high school career. How did your high school career end? And then talk to us about your your choice of the University of Oklahoma. Well, my choice came by, my choice of OU came through uh, a scout from uh, Pittsburgh Pirates who I initially signed with. But I was wanting to stay home because I was more or less involved with a girlfriend. And I didn't want to go out to Arizona State and places like that because that would be too far away for me to come back and visit her. So uh, that's, you know, and I... When scouts started talking to you about that, Jonathan, you you know, I really didn't know that I was that good. Honestly, I still, you know, when I went to college, I didn't know I was that good. But they they gave me a scholarship to OU as as a freshman. I played there. And at that time, the varsity only had three classes to it, and the freshmen couldn't play. So we were more or less on our own there, but they were giving us instructions. The freshman team was uh, on its own. And so your freshman team were on its own. I heard a rumor that you're one of the only freshman varsity or freshman pitchers to ever beat the OU varsity team. Is that accurate? I can't tell you that. I really don't know. But I know the freshmen used to play the varsity. And uh, after I signed to play with Pittsburgh, they went by. I found out. That they had won the uh, the Big Eight tournament that the year after that I left, but yes, I did pitch two or three games against them, of which there were several several scouts playing uh, sitting in the big leagues watching me pitch, and I think I struck out eighteen one time, seventeen one time, and beat them both uh, by the score one to nothing. Well, that's awesome. So, so you're at OU for a year, and then what did you do after that year? After the year, I played with a, uh, a semi-pro team by the name of the Oklahoma City Natural Gassers, which the Natural Gas Company of Oklahoma sponsored. And I played with several of my teammates off the freshman team, along with some other people who had already played pro but had retired and come back to work for the gas company. And now was this an untraditional route that that you took or was that something that was that that a lot of people really did back then? Well Jonathan, you'll have to realize now back then programs were as such you went and played baseball and normally they find you somewhere, you know, and fortunately for me, or unfortunately for me, they found me. But I think that was a route that most people took. They usually went from high school. After high graduating from high school, they went and played. Or in some instances, they uh, didn't even graduate. They went ahead and played pro baseball without graduating from high school. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you signed, I think, 
the year before the draft was instituted? That is very true. Okay. Very true. Okay. So you end up signing with the Pirates. Now talk to us about what that what that looked like. So you signed the dotted line, and, and then what happens next? Before I signed the dotted line, I, th- there were several professional baseball teams had scheduled me uh, trips to uh, different cities or different teams to play with. Of, of such, I, they flew me to Boston. I went to Boston, and I worked out with them, spent two days with them, toured the clubhouse, met a bunch of the guys that, that were major leaguers at that time. And I threw batting practice. I threw on the sidelines, went to Houston, did the same thing. I uh, went to St. Louis and did the same thing. Went to Philadelphia and did the same thing. Had uh, had trips scheduled to go to L.A. to work out with the Dodgers as well as the Yankees. And uh, I signed before I I did that. Okay, so you signed with the Pirates, and then where did they? Where did you go uh, from there? Well, where I went from there, I went to an instruction league out in Chandler, Arizona. That was my first taste of playing professional baseball, and we spent two, two and a half months there, and got to come home right after Christmas. But that's that was my first taste. I played against several teams like the uh, San Francisco Giants, the Dodgers, uh, the teams that were in the uh, instructional league there. Okay, and so uh, how long were you in the minor leagues, and then what was it like whenever you got the call to the major league club? My first year, I went to Asheville, North Carolina, which was a double-A a farm team with the Pittsburgh Pirates. Before that, I went to spring training with a big club, which was unheard of. And then I went to minor leagues, and they uh, sent me to Asheville, North Carolina. Triple-A team, which was in Columbus, Ohio, of the Pittsburgh Pirates, actually wanted me to break camp with them and go start with them. But they thought, me being only barely 19 years old, that I wasn't mature enough to handle that situation. I started out in uh, Asheville, North Carolina, in the AA Sally League, and we traveled throughout the southeastern part of the state, uh, I mean, the United States, and uh, I had a good year. That's good. So the next year, uh, you went to spring training, and they brought you up from there? No. uh, I'll have to tell you this. The final... The final game I was pitching against, which was in Asheville, North Carolina, of the season, I was throwing a fastball, and I felt this sudden pain in my elbow. So the next year, they rested me. From there, the the next – what year would that be? 65, I guess it was. In 65, I came back. And my arm felt decent, you know, but uh, it still wasn't what it once was. But I answer your question, in 65, I went to the Major League Baseball. You know, just from hearing stories growing up about Clemente and Stargell and Mazeroski, I'm sure we'll get into those here in just a second. But Damn. So you broke camp with the Major League Club. I mean, was it, from, from my understanding, it's one of those that's just you still have – 
this mindset of, you know, this still, it's not a big deal. Now, if we had it today, you see all of the, all of the people who are getting videoed with the call to move up to the major league club and, and everything. It's just jubilation everywhere. So was it very similar like that to you or was it just another thing? It was jubilation, but it was also, uh, <laughs> well, how can I put this? I, I really didn't feel like I was ready, son, honestly, because I'd hurt my arm the year before and not knowing what to expect coming in with, uh, with your arm being the situation I was. I really didn't think that I was ready and I wasn't. So they sent me back to Columbus, Ohio, which is the AAA franchise. And, uh, uh, jubilation, yes, but, uh, reservations was there as well. I understand. Now, talk to us about uh, one of your one of your best friends with the Pirates, and that's Willie Stargell. Now, how did you guys develop a relationship, and why did he take a liking to you? The relationship we developed came about through our <laughs> through the scout that signed us both, and Bob Zuck was his name, and he was from California, and he had signed Willie as well in California. And he asked Willie Stargell to look after me when I arrived in the major league camp. So uh, it was quite surprising to me when I walked through the door of the training camp, Willie Stargell walked up to me and uh, introduced himself and said, I'm here to take care of you. And he very well took care of me. Well, that's awesome. And and you guys have, I don't want to say similar heritage, but Willie had some Native American blood and Oklahoma is such a Native American or such such known for a Native American state that 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 kind of sealed the bond as well is that correct that's true but he didn't realize Jonathan that he was part Indian until he came back about four or five years later to the state of Oklahoma and he started studying what you're saying and when he found out he was part Indian he, he made him quite happy he spent probably a good part of uh, two or three months going through the family tree and whatnot, and uh, he, he, that's where he found it out, Earlsboro, Oklahoma. For those listening, that's not exactly a, a huge town. And, you know, talk to us about some of the different conversations that you had with either Stargell or Roberto Clemente. I mean, I, I heard all of these growing up, but if you wouldn't mind, share those for the listeners who would love to hear some of those things. When I grew up, I could I could hit as well. The Philadelphia Phillies and a couple other uh, pro teams were offered me contracts out of high school as a third baseman and as an infielder, and I, I could swing the bat pretty good, and I enjoyed hitting. And I think uh, Clemente and Stargell, along with Mazeroski, both realized that. You know, and to make a long story, Clemente and Stargell. Each gave me bats for me to use, which which I was quite shocked when they did that. But they said, "You're a good hitter, you know. You can swing the bat." So they they went ahead and gave me a bat to use, which I was very appreciative. Well, that's awesome, and and a story that I remember with Clemente that you always 
would tell me growing up was he drew uh, the diagram of the field. Now, can you fill in the, the blanks oh, of that for me? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, let me go back and tell you about Clemente's bat. He get, the bats he gave me were so heavy at that time. <laughs> Lord, I could hardly pick them up, let alone try to swing them. <laughs> but getting back to the uh, – we were in Los Angeles and taking an overnight trip back after the game, taking an overnighter back to Pittsburgh. And Clemente, Clemente and I were sitting down talking about hitting. And what he did, he took a, a blank piece of paper and he drew out the, the, the field. And he put in the infielders, second base, third base, shortstop, left field, right field, and so on, so on. But then he pointed arrows with his pen about taking the ball up the middle. He drew, you know, these arrows towards right field and, and, uh, right center and left center and he said look at all the space you have there to get a base hit then he showed me the the um how small it was down the left field line in the right and the right field line you know to get the space was to get a hit and he he then he told me he used the pitcher as a target and you know what I truly believe that because the small amount of time I was around him a lot of his base hits were up right right center and left center. Well, then he also, uh, you know, obviously one of the greatest arms ever in right field, but he also liked to pitch to the pitchers. Is that, am I, am I remembering that correctly? <laughs> oh, yes. When, when the pitchers back, back when we played, the pitchers always took batting practice prior to the, to the utility players coming to take their batting practice. And on several occasions, he would be on the mound trying to throw us live BP, and believe it or not, he should have tried to throw from second base because <laughs> he very he wasn't very active. <laughs> so you guys would get hits off of him, and I'm sure he reacted uh, well. Well, he was rather upset that he couldn't throw strikes is what I'm talking <laughs> about, Jonathan. <laughs> uh, that's funny. You know, I, I think he needed to use the hop, skip, and jump from second base, and he could probably be a lot more accurate. But believe me, he had one of the greatest arms I've ever seen on a, on a on an outfielder. Anybody, I mean, that man could throw the ball ten feet off the ground all the way to third base. Or you got to remember now, Forbes Field was a humongous field, okay? And uh, he would take the ball to right center, and I mean, absolutely fire a missile to second or third base or home base as it is. At home plate. It, it's it was quite impressive. Now, did he ever say how he developed that arm strength, or was it just you know pretty much God given? No, he never really talked about his home life to me much in Puerto Rico, but uh, he never said too much about that. But I think a lot of it was God given. But then again, I'm sure he worked on it when he was growing up as playing like I did when I was out on the farm in Granite, Oklahoma. I mean, you know, I'm sure he had a lot more kids that he played ball with throughout his career until he signed. But he signed at a very young age, too, as most Puerto Ricans did in those days. I understand. Now, how big of a guy was he? Honestly, son, he wasn't that large. I mean, he was probably bordering on 5'11", 6 feet. God gave him uh, some tremendous muscles to play baseball with. 
Because back in those days, son, we didn't lift weights and things of this nature that these guys do now. So you mentioned Mazeroski earlier, and he's well regarded as one of the greatest infielders of all time. Now, what made him so special? Well, I think the act for him getting to the ball as quick as he did and being able to turn the double play as quickly as he did. Uh, I've told you stories about he used the outside of his glove to turn a double play lots of times instead of the uh, the pocket that most infielders use. And I don't know where he came up with that, but I guarantee you he could darn sure do it. Well, that's awesome. Now, growing up on a farm, was there a lot of time for your parents to come watch you play and, and talk to us about, you know, whenever you made your debut in Pittsburgh or whenever you – Whenever you got up there and whenever you guys were throwing, talk to us about you actually getting to hear your mom in the stands over thousands and thousands of people. Oh, well, that was in, that was when we the expansion in 1969, and then I was traded to Seattle from Kansas City for you-know-who. But uh, to make a long story short, we were, we were in Kansas City playing the, uh, the Royals, and they had a bat day. And that's the only time my parents ever got to come see me play. And uh, they spent the weekend in Kansas City, and I came in to pitch as a reliever at that time. And there were probably, I can't recall, 45,000 people in the stands banging bats on seats and whatnot. (laughs) And I'm standing on the mound getting ready to take my sign and whatnot, and all of a sudden, I hear this voice come through the crowd, and I backed off the mound and said, is that my mother? And I, and I got back on the mound, and it, surely it was. It's amazing how that happens. But I'm, I've heard of it happening to other people as well. You were with the Pirates, and then the Major Leagues expanded a couple of teams. And so how did how did you get to Kansas City? And, you know, you said I got traded for you-know-who. Well, talk to us about how that all went down. Well, I initially – was with Pittsburgh, as you well know, and then the expansion draft came in in 19, uh, I guess, was it the fall of 68 or 69? I can't remember, but I was bought by the Kansas City Royals in the expansion draft. I think they paid a quarter of a million dollars for me or something like that, and then I was only in spring training. Like I said, I had a bad arm there again. And I was traded from Kansas City to uh, to Seattle for uh, Lou Pinello. Got it. So now you're in Seattle. So you go from Pittsburgh to Kansas City to now the Seattle Pilots. Now, not the Mariners that we all know and love. So talk to us about your year in Seattle and talk to us about the Pilots. Talk about everything that was going on there. Uh, the Seattle Pilots. As most people recognize, the Seattle Pilots are a one-year wonder. Uh, We played in an old AAA baseball park, which the power alleys were about 345 to 350 in right center and left center. My year, I had a very good year there. I was 3-10, and but my (laughs) ERA was in the low threes now. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, I, I started 11 games there, Jonathan, and I got 10 runs to work with in those, those 11 starts. I had a good friend that I played baseball, and you've heard me talk about him several times, by the name of Gene Brawbender. He, was, uh, he was, had a winning record from Seattle, but honestly, son, his ERA was about 
over the fours, I believe, and uh, they he averaged getting better than six to seven runs a game. Now, I sometimes wonder what would have happened if I'd have had the run support that he had. Well, he was a lo- slightly larger man than yourself, so that's probably the reason why he got more runs. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. He was a very large man. He was about 6'6", probably weighed uh, close to 260. Very strong man. Grew up on grew up in Black Earth, Wisconsin. He was a dairy man. His parents were dairy farmers and whatnot. So he used his hands a great deal. And I, I saw him at that time, son. A lot of the baseball bases were held down by iron iron spikes, and he he could take those and put them between his two fingers and bend those. I've seen him take uh, sixteen penny nails and put it over his index finger and press down with his middle finger and thumbs break those as well. So he, yes, he was a very strong man and very few people ever bothered him. <laughs> I bet. <That's> right. <laughs> and he, Johnson, he had this, he had this real curly hair and what he would do, he would comb it straight back and he wore these, these glasses that were really like horn type glasses, you mm. know, that had the horn frames on them real small. I mean, he was a character within himself. So most people know the pilots because of the book called Ball Four. Now, you played with Boughton, and talk to us about you know what, what he was doing with you guys, and you're mentioned in the book several times. Well, how did that happen? That book started with a... Uh, a notebook pad that he always had in his in his back pocket in his uniform. And during batting practice, all the pitchers would be out in the outfield calling what we call shagging. And, and if a ball was hit out there, we'd go run and get it and come throw it back in to the screen behind second base. But uh, he would always, and most pitchers, they didn't stand by themselves. They always got together and they, they told stories, you know, about what happened last night or the, a year before, just baseball stories. And and he, if he liked his story, he would write it down, okay? And we often ask him, Bouton, what the hell are you doing? Well, I'm writing this book, guys, and we never really thought anything about it because we didn't think he would be using uh, uh, real names. Well, he did do that, and mm-hmm. honestly, Jonathan – the book would have never probably gotten written if it hadn't been for all of us other guys, you know, helping him out by not knowing him what we were doing. But we were helping him write the book, you know, through our stories of what we were talking about and whatnot. And then I was told that he would send the uh, the stories that he wrote down in his in, on this notepad. He'd go back home and he'd put them on a tape recorder and send them to this so-called ghostwriter in New York City who actually wrote the book. That makes sense. Now, when the book came out, was it did it make a lot of people mad, I guess is what I'm trying to say? Well, <laughs> uh, yes, it did. We, uh, I'll never forget, we were in, uh, on a Saturday morning, we had come to the ballpark in Milwaukee to play a baseball game, and the clubhouse manager went and bought all these magazines and uh, and uh, put them in our lockers. Well, <laughs> when we got into the clubhouse and opened 
went to our locker there, the magazine was, and initially everybody picked it up and started reading it. And I mean, I'm telling you, magazines are flying all over the, their own clubhouse because they're very upset people. Well, I can I completely understand why. Now, so you're in Seattle, and then you guys finished the season. You had your three and ten record with your just barely over three ERA. Now. Most people know the Pilots just because they're the only one-year team in history. Now, how did how did the move to Milwaukee happen? And you know, talk to us about you know how how you found out, and then what happens next. Well, I can't remember the year it was now, son, but it had to be the next year. Let's see, sixty-nine, seventy, yeah, mm-hmm. nineteen seventy. We were in spring training playing, you know, and we we knew that Marvin was trying to sell the baseball team, but we didn't know where it was going to go. Or Supposedly, there were several people in Seattle that were trying to buy the team to keep it there. And this was almost at the end of spring training. And uh, (laughs) several of the wives had already left spring training and were driving their kids and what little stuff they had in the car to to Seattle to – to find an apartment or a house to live in. Well, this, the Seattle group sold the, uh, the baseball franchise to Milwaukee. So we ended up flying to Milwaukee instead of, uh, instead of Seattle to start the season. Now, uh, that's a story within itself going to Seattle, which drew very few people to Milwaukee. We landed in the airport about, Twelve thirty, one o'clock, and Jonathan, you would have thought that we had won the World Series there. There, I mean, the police had to push back the crowd so we could out of the airport, we could get on into the uh, on our buses to go downtown. And every stoplight that we had to stop at, stop at, there were people on on the street corners waving at us. We mm-hmm. get down to the hotel, and there again, there's hundreds i don't know maybe thousands of people welcoming us to milwaukee you know that's quite an experience i never got to play in the world series but i darn sure got to experience that that's quite quite amazing from reading ball four it sounded like your manager in seattle was a uh, a big fan of beer itself so talk to us about (laughs) You know, the chapter that he comes out to the mound visit. Now, this may be the best mound advice, mound visit advice I've ever heard, but talk to us about, you know, actually being there and, and what he says. Oh, well, honestly, son, I can't recall that. You want to tell me what it was? Well, it was something to the effect of, Gellner, why don't you get out of this situation so we can go pound some Budweiser? Oh, he always said that. He always said that. He He was a... Schultz, Joel Schultz was his name, and uh, he he worked under the St. Louis Cardinals uh, franchise for quite some time, and and he did love his Budweiser. I can tell you that. After every game, if we'd win, that's that's initially what he would say: "Let's pound that Budweiser, boys. Let's get <laughs> after it now." So he was quite a character within himself. Very likable guy. I really liked him. I loved playing for that guy. So you made the move to Milwaukee. Now was what was baseball like playing in Milwaukee? And you know, it's it's you're we're getting towards the end of your major league career. So talk to us about how all that went down, and if you've got any stories, let us know. 
Initially, son, playing baseball in Milwaukee was fantastic. They moved me from being a starter pitcher to uh, the bullpen, of which I didn't start a game in Milwaukee. But I think the year that I was there in Milwaukee, I I appeared in like 55 ball games and uh, I had, I can't even remember my uh, record. I'm sure some of your listeners could tell me exactly what my record was there, but I, I was very, uh, I loved Milwaukee. It reminded me of a, over the large farm town. I mean, you could be out of the city limits in a matter of 15 minutes and be out in the country and it's absolutely gorgeous and pretty. I'd love to go back up there again, see how it's developed now. But Milwaukee was, it was a great place to play baseball, have gr- some of the greatest hot dogs in the world. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I really enjoyed doing that. And then after that, my final year, then I hurt my arm again and I got traded to Detroit. After that, I ended my career. So the end of your baseball career, but uh, it's not the end of the show. So I've got some other questions for you and most of them you know have to deal with just stories that i've heard or asking our family and friends what their favorite stories about you are now the first one that i've got is you've talked about you've hurt your elbow a couple of different times now you actually had a conversation with tommy john about having that surgery before it happened so can you talk to us about that i remember being there again i was back in seattle and i guess Tommy John had surgery on his elbow, and he was out that year. But I remember him, Jonathan, running around the ballpark, you know. And some of the some of the people stopped him and asked him what in the heck was he doing, you know. And he says, "Well, guys, I've had this surgery," and he showed us his elbow. And my gosh, Jonathan, it was unbelievably large. Which I understand now they don't even do that type of surgery with that type of incision and whatnot but he said i'm getting ready for next year and we all thought he was really kind of you know crazy with that type of arm issue that he had that he was ever going to pitch again and lo and behold he darn sure did so that was quite interesting and that's where it took off so i've also got i've got a a story about playing in a, a winter league and maybe the umpire missed a call and you had to get flown out in a helicopter. Talk to us about that one. <laughs> well, I played in the uh, Dominican Republic and where we played at, uh, we were the first in United States citizens in, in Dominican Republic after they had uh, the overthrow of Trujillo who was a dictator at that time. Very few people. Well, some of you guys probably remember that. But uh, I remember son walking or playing a baseball game. And I mean, there's 45 caliber machine guns sitting on top of the dugout and armed guards walking throughout the uh, the stands, you know. And, And these Dominicans were quite fanatic. They had teams of their own, you know, and they wore the colors and, you know, They were a much different group of supporters of baseball than what we see here in the United States. And this umpire got, he made some bad calls against the team and, and the, uh, people were 
actually they're almost coming out of the stands and they <laughs> they flew this helicopter in and landed and jumped, put him on it and took off and, <laughs> you know there we are standing over saying what in the hell are we gonna do now you know <laughs> but it pretty well quieted down you know after that the first base umpire moved in to take the home plate umpire's position and we finished the game oh so this was during the middle of the game yes oh my gosh Yes. <laughs> so you just finished the game. All right. That's awesome. Yeah. Did you win? I can't remember. <laughs> I remember almost having a perfect game in uh, Puerto Rico for eight and two-thirds innings. I had a perfect game. And uh, this wasn't uh, the shabby. Uh, what, this wasn't a bad team I was playing with. All the guys that I was pitching against were all uh, had played in the major leagues the year before. And I jammed. I threw an inside fastball that ran on this guy's hands, and and he barely got it over the uh, shortstop's arm or heck glove, and it fell in for a base hit. There went my perfect game, but it was quite interesting. So, honestly, I'll tell you another story about Dominican Republic. When we initially get down there, I had pitched a game, and I had won. And I have this knock on my door, and this guy gives me uh, money, you know, and he runs off. You know, <laughs> and, and I look at this money, and I say, my God, what am I going to do here? You know, this is not mine. So I went down, <laughs> I went down and asked some of the, uh, the native people that I was playing with and whatnot, son. And uh, they said, well, you know, you got to realize that uh, these people are betting on you. And if they win, sometimes they'll they'll give you money. And I was a recipient of money for at least four different times. I was looking forward. I was looking forward for knocks on my my door to find out whether or not they were going to give me any more money or not. But that was kind of strange. And we landed. I have to tell you this story, Jonathan. We landed. I was telling you we were the first citizens in the United States being down at Santo Domingo. Well, we were the only people there other than the government people. And when we landed, there were people booing at us and hissing at us and telling us to go home and whatnot. And I, I feared for my life a little bit. I mean, it was amazing. But when we left, I mean, I think we helped Santo Domingo kind of changed its attitude towards the United States people because, you know, we we left. They were they they sent us off. Well, how can I say this? We they were very pleased that we came. I love those, and I love those stories. Now, a couple of years ago, I started doing some research, and 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 for the listeners to know that I I'm a coach and I'm a big fan of uh, of weighted balls, but. You told me that the you know the weighted ball thing and and weighted balls were not new at all. So tell our listeners a little bit about what you what the conversation looked like between us. Well, like I said previously, son, I I went to uh, <coughs> excuse me, I went to uh, several teams and worked out with the, the parent team. And one of the teams that I worked out with was the Houston Forty Five. They later changed their name, as you well know. And this pitching coach from that was the pitching coach for the Houston Ball Club gave me this this ball that looked like a shot put, only smaller, you know. And he said, you know, and 
you need to use this. This will definitely help you. And I asked him, I said, how in the world can I use this? And then he showed me different exercises to do with my arm and whatnot. And I carried that ball for quite some time, son, in my baseball bag. And I honestly can't tell you whether or not it helped me at all or not. But now, you know, you read about all these stories about how different organizations are, are, are recommending you doing things like this as well as yourself. But his name was Cot Deal, and uh, his father was Roy Deal, who was my manager going back to the natural gassers back in Oklahoma City. He, his father was Roy Deal, who was my coach then at uh, Oklahoma City. You know, I got a lot of – that gave me a lot of insight of just – interest of, of how long weighted balls have been around in the game of baseball and I, I found that really interesting but you know for our listeners talk to us about what it was like pitching in the big leagues and you know selfishly I want to know who was the hardest hitter that you ever faced well there were several of them Jonathan <laughs> but I would say the most difficult one that I ever faced was a man by the name of Rod Carew who's in the hall of fame now and I always had trouble with these guys that were more or less like what we used to call these punch and Judy hitters. I mean, they, they honestly didn't have any holes in their swing. You'd pitch them inside. My God, they'd, they'd take you to left field, you know, or you take them out on the, out on the corner, right corner of the plate. My God, they'd take you to left field, you know. They, they just didn't have any, any holes in their swing. Another one who I hate to say was Pete Rose. Now he, he was basically the same type of hitter, but he had a lot more power, you know. But those guys, Reggie Jackson and people like that, you could pitch them high and tight and go away with the changeup and stuff like that and basically have pretty good success with them. Harmon Killebrew, the same way, you know, things of that nature. But the guys I had trouble with basically the the players that, uh, the hitters that were punch and duty hitters. No, I love it. Now you had a, I don't, I don't want to say friend, but a former Oki on the, uh, on the Reds while we're on the subject of, of Reds players. Now, did you have a relationship with Johnny Bench or did you guys just acknowledge that each other were from the same state? Well, <laughs> yes, we had a relationship. I never will forget. I was, uh, we played against each other in high school, unbeknownst to me. I didn't even know that, but, uh, I was, let's go back when I was playing with Pittsburgh Pirates and I was in spring training with the Pirates again and they sent me down to, um, Daytona Beach and I was in the uh, starting lineup that day pitching against the Cincinnati Redlegs and I wasn't as I wasn't in a very good mood and whatnot, but to make a long story short, I kept hearing this guy from Cincinnati on the Reds team just, oh, my God, he knew everything about me, you know. <laughs> and, and I'm saying, who is this dude? I don't. He knew things about me that I didn't even know, about, <laughs> I think. But I pitched seven innings there, and uh, I was doing my sprints in the outfield after the during the game and after the game, it still was. And all of a sudden, I see this guy come running, running towards me, you know. I'm going, oh, my God, what is going on now? And he he ran up to me. He says, you probably don't remember me or know me, but my name is Johnny Bench, and I played against you in high school. You know, I said, oh, okay. We, we became 
more or less when I went to Buffalo to play against him, we saw each other, you know, went out and he would come to Columbus, same thing. So, yeah, that's kind of, <laughs> that was an unusual story. That now, now, did he show you how many baseballs he could hold in his hand? Oh, without question. I, I saw him take seven baseballs and somehow or other get all seven in his fingers and in the palm of his hand. And then what the trick was, son, the seven, you, you can hold it. Like this, and then turn it over is where the key is, and you have to turn hold those balls. And I mean, he could do that. There were guys I saw that got five in there, turning over, and the balls would fall out and stuff like that. That was amazing how he could do that. Honestly, I don't know of anybody else who can do that. I'm sure there are, but I don't know of anybody else. No, I love that. And staying on the subject of Okies, uh, did you ever get a chance to meet Mickey Mantle? Yes, I did. That, that, you know, when I was growing up, my dad, he always believed in newspapers and he always believed in us reading. And he always took the newspaper called the Daily Oklahoma, which was the largest newspaper in the state of Oklahoma, probably still is. But we would read that religiously. I always remember getting on the floor and reading about the Yankees and we followed the Yankees. That was my favorite team at the time. But anyway, when I met Mickey Mantle, that was quite an impression. Uh, you know, I was I was just, well, I couldn't really talk to him, Jonathan. You know, all I could do was listen to him talk to me and nod my head yes or no. You know, I was just kind of in awe that um, he was quite a man, quite a man. Well, and, and most people say that he kind of takes care of the people from Oklahoma or he took care of the people from Oklahoma. That was his reputation, and I, and he really honestly did. He took care of me, you know. He gave me a glove, which I wish I still had. Yeah, I wish you still had it, too. <laughs> I wish I had all the bats that Roberto Clemente and Willie Stargell gave me as well, son. Well, why didn't you keep all, any of that Well, I, w I went, honestly, I went, when I was in Pittsburgh, I went to the children's hospital there, and I gave all the stuff that I people had given me away to those kids who you know i just wanted to make them feel better and i hope those families still have those bats and balls and gloves because i guarantee you they're worth something today oh no no question so also you got to play against frank howard now frank it was uh somewhat of a pull hitter is that is that accurate frank howard was we talked earlier about about Gene Broadbender being so big. Well, Gene Broadbender didn't hold a candle to Frank Howard. This man was huge now. He probably played at 300 pounds, and his shoulders were so broad you could hardly he could hardly get him through a door. <laughs> and he was about 6'8". And when he, the year before, he was the most valuable, or he led the team and led the league in home runs. I, he could have been the most valuable, too. I don't remember. But uh, when he came up to play, Jonathan, he'd take that, that bat that looked like he got it out of the trees somewhere, you know, it was so long and whatnot, and lean over, and the bat would go at least uh, six to eight inches across home plate over the outside corner. I mean, the man was just absolutely huge. Mm -hmm. And they, the Washington Stadium at that time had – <laughs> had seats painted where uh, where he had hit the baseballs 
And it's unbelievable. I know Lou Krause and I took golf clubs to try to hit it up there, and there's no way we got close to it. <laughs> <laughs> there's another one, Lou Krause. He was a good friend of mine. He really was. I'd like to see him sometime. Well, talk. You got any stories on him? <laughs> well, I got several of them, Jonathan, but I don't want to repeat them on the air. <laughs> I love it. Uh, <laughs> Well, I guess we better start wrapping this up. I could sit here and talk with you all day, but, you know. Uh, you do. Yeah. You do. <laughs> right. Well, I get the privilege of that and, and get the privilege of, you know, close proximity to a Major League Baseball player. So I wanted to be able to take advantage of that. And for our listeners, just talk to us about, you know, most of them is the coaching community or, or still playing. Uh, and so talk to us about some of the best advice you got while playing. I would recommend you start kids. If you're going to start coaching kids early, I would teach them the fundamentals. Stay away from curveballs and whatnot. The game of baseball is a rep- repetitious sport. You have to go up, you have to play continually. And I think that's what made me so good when I was growing up, son, was because I was always throwing something. You know, you can ask your uncle about me. I always had something in my hand and I was throwing it, but Fortunately for me, I was throwing the proper way. I've seen so many kids nowadays not throwing with the right fundamentals, and, and, and it hurts me to see that because, you know, they're never going to be able to play baseball when they get older just because they're not fundamentally sound. Hitting's the same way. Fielding's the same way, you know, and, and um, just work with these kids. There are, there are so many things that they can tap into Jonathan via the internet or whatever books and learn the right way to do these things and people like yourself who have this this show or this podcast now are teaching these people how to do things the right way you know and I would say just stay after it because wow I wish I was a kid again with the increments these guys are playing with I mean with all you know the videos when I was playing Jonathan, I, there was none of that available, you know. When I got hurt, I had one heck of a curveball when I was when I first started out playing. And, and, you know, they compared it to Camilio Pasquale, who was with the Minnesota Twins. And he was a dominant force with his curveball and whatnot. Well, when I, got, when I hurt my arm, son, I never got that curveball back again. Now, if I'd had videos of myself, you know, I was probably doing something fundamentally wrong initially the way I, I pitched before, you know. But I had no way of knowing that. I had no help. These people have all the help in the world. Now, if you want something, you can find it on the Internet or whatever. All right. Well, this is. I'm just going to open up the mic. Is there anything else that you'd like to tell our listeners before you go? Not not really, Jonathan, but you know what, son? I really admire what you for what you're trying to do and what you have done. I never thought you'd be able to do something like this, but, you know, you have done one fantastic job, and I think you really enjoy doing what you're doing, and I, and I appreciate being on this show. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Ahead of the Curve. Before you go, I'd love to be able to get in touch with you, and we have several different ways of doing so. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at AOTC underscore podcast. 
You can join the AOTC Coaches Facebook group. And if you want to be a part of the mini clinic emails, both of those links are listed below. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a rating or review to help others find and stay ahead of the curve.